0: continue with our sermon series that uh, Galatians, Robert McMahon uh, faithfully and capably provided the last two weeks for us. I took on chapter one, he took on chapter two and three, and um, I'm here. It's chapter four of Galatians today, and um, I enjoyed those two weeks. I'm grateful for him filling in for those two weeks. Um, In case you were wondering, you have me for the next 18 weeks, so you better buckle up because it's going to get real interesting. We're not going to be in Galatians for 18 weeks, but you got me for 18 Chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul is addressing some really core issues, and uh, they're issues of insecurity and idolatry. We're going to start with this idea of insecurity. We are born uh, as insecure creatures. All you have to do is hold an infant to realize how vulnerable we are, can't fend for ourselves. We're entirely dependent as humans at the moment of our birth. As we grow, um, as intricate and delicate and beautiful as we are, we remain vulnerable. Relationally and spiritually, physically and emotionally, we are still vulnerable and secure creatures. So we begin to grab on to other people to provide security for us. Early in life, that's a natural process with your parents. They provide your security. As we get older and we hit certain stages of life, we begin to choose mates. We choose others to make us feel good about ourselves, maybe give us a compliment here or there. We borrow those compliments, we use them as our confidence, and then the presence of another starts to become a primary way that we find assurance and security. Someone to worship in hopes that they might worship us back just a little bit. Someone to lend us confidence in our fragile and imperfect bones, in our vulnerable selves when if we're really honest with ourselves, we all feel it at times where we go, whew just a little wobbly out here. It's a fragile security to root in someone else, though, because when we root our security in anyone else, we're rooted in their whims, in their desires, and in their preferences. And should those preferences change, we're in trouble. We crumble. So, we start to get wary. Some of us have stopped putting our security in another person, and we get wary, and we go another layer out. We go, you know what? That feels a little too personal, a little too tenuous, i got to go another layer out. So what do we do? You buy a Browns jersey, (laughs) or you become a Swifty, or a political superfan, whatever. You look for security in part of a larger group. You use that larger group, that transcendent group, I'm part of something bigger than myself to anchor yourselves in your identity. We find influencers. We use their security as our own. Influencer is like a new term, but it's not actually a new thing. Instagram influencer, that's a thing, but it's always been a thing that people in our culture are influential. So then we use their security and their popularity and their beauty and their cachet. We use all of them and who they are. We attach to them. I'm a big fan of this person or that person. I identify with them. They're my people online do they know who you are? No, but I know who they are. This is uh, weird that we do this, but it's not like I'm not throwing stones. In the, in the 90s and early 2000s in faith, it got real weird. Um, is, there were these questions that got asked, uh, especially as a young pastor, you get asked, are you, a, are you a Mark Driscoll person or a Rob Bell person? And if you're of a certain vintage, you know what that question means, and it was like, whoa, I got to pick one? And then people would say, "Are you more of a Tim Keller person or a John Piper person?" You're like, "Really? Can I be both? Are you a Joyce Meyer kind of guy or a Jen Hatmaker kind of guy?" I don't. I mean, and Christians started going, "Let's play the influencer game too." I like this person's Bible studies. I like that person's preaching. I like this type of music, and and so we can cobble together our own influential little self-curated church then we knowingly or maybe not knowingly invite them to disciple us. And so as the internet culture grows and we're able to listen to sermons from anywhere in the world and we're able to read the blogs and books of anyone in the world and we're able to kind of cobble together these different influencers in the Christian world, we begin to be influenced by them. And if we're not careful, purely discipled towards them. Jen Hatmaker is a great example of this. I'm not throwing stones at her either. I was once on a a panel and she was the the speaker at the conference and I had so much respect for her. The things she was doing with adoption, the things she was doing in in justice-oriented, I was so impressed. And she really pioneered uh, how to create sort of Christian celebrity in a lot of ways. She helped pioneer this tribe building on Facebook, where if you build enough Facebook followers, then you can kind of leverage them into a following of dollars. And that's not wrong, it's capitalism, it's America. But she would create, she created an identity brand, and people identified with Jen, I am with Jen Hatmaker. And then, when people, insecure in their faith, looked for security in her teaching and her leading, and she took a turn in her theology, people went with her because they were rooted in her. Hundreds of thousands of unsuspecting folks went, I guess I believe that too. That's a problem. Because if we're not careful, we're rooting ourselves onto something less than God, we're rooting ourselves in our security on something less than Jesus. And then when that thing switches, if that thing changes, if that thing crumbles, we crumble with it. I think what I'm trying to say is that people will let you down. Christian leaders will let you down. I will let you down. Taylor Swift will let you down. Your political heroes will let you down. The Cleveland Browns. (laughs) Didn't have to finish the sentence. So then we realize that people are unreliable. And maybe some of these kind of outside ideas are unreliable. And in our insecurity, we turn back to self. So we move on to career achievement. I can create my own status that is clear and measurable. I can set goals and reach them, and in that I find security. I can turn to wealth creation. I can work and plan and strategize and hit my wealth goals. And as I get there, I feel secure that I am who I say I am. We turn to educational achievement, I will call myself and will myself into a new level of achievement, and once I get there, then that's who I am, and that number, the letter next to my name, that will, that will tell people and I'll be secure in myself because of that. Slip into permanent retail therapy where I become my own therapist through shopping. I can shop for new security, and because there's ever new things to buy, I can always be on the hunt for that new thing, but once I find it for a moment, I'll feel better. Finally, most pointedly, and where Paul is going, is we can turn to religious observance. We can become really religious, closed-minded, closed-hearted people. That instead of following the risen Christ, we begin to follow rules and religion, and we get stuck in our ways and our rituals and our, our, our kind of closed-minded society that if you don't do it this way and if you don't dress that way and sing this song and go to this place on that Sunday, then you're not doing it right. If you just follow the rules we would think, then you could be in. And so, I will use the rules of religion as my security. I checked all the boxes. I'm good now. Paul is encountering this in the Galatians, insecure people who are falling back into religion and law-keeping as their path to security. They're not, they're not bad people who are ill-intended. They're not nefarious people with some insidious motivation. They're great people like you and me who got their eye off the ball for a minute and looked up, and they had realized their insecurity, and they gravitated towards the nearest thing, and for them it was religiosity and rules. Galatians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, "'I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything.'" But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And in the same way, also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul says, we were slaves to the way of the world. And the striving was natural. The striving was normal. This, this glomming on to other people for our security was the way that we were kind of wired to go. It is in our flesh. But in Jesus, He says, we've been adopted. We are now children of God with full legal rights, no longer slaves working for a master, but heirs and beloved children. Paul is lifting this language from the Greco-Roman world in which he's writing and speaking. A slave in that world could be adopted into a family. So, for instance, a wealthy childless man could adopt a slave and make that slave his heir. So, lacking heirs, who gets your estate? Who gets your house? Who gets your money? Who gets your? It's Greco-Roman world. Your horse, cars, um, and so lacking an heir but maybe he's had this really valuable servant who's really more like a son to him and has been there for 30 years. And he goes, I'm going to formally adopt and officially adopt this slave so that this slave becomes my adopted son, my official legal heir, and then is welcome to all of my things. For the slave, this is a wild turn of fortune, isn't it? With no legal right to any of the master's possessions, now all full legal rights just at the stroke of a pen. Paul says that's us. That's you. That you and I were born to a certain way, and Jesus is adopting us into the family of heaven to be full heirs of God. You were a slave to the world and its principles. You were insecure and striving for an identity, and you've been adopted. And the word there in the Scripture, the word is redeemed. You have been redeemed, which means you were paid for. A redemption is when something is paid for. You were literally paid for in order to clear a debt. You were bought at great cost at the life of Jesus. And what's more, verse 6, Because you are sons, and we should say sons and daughters, Paul is writing to the young men of the church, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. If you're no longer a slave but now a child of God, something has changed fundamentally, not just this official designation of who gets whose stuff, but there's been an identity shift that takes place. You've been adopted and you' have a new identity, and there's another shift coming, and the shift is coming in the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that you have this radical identity shift and a radical security split and Tim Keller says it this way he says the son's purpose was to secure for us the legal status of our sonship. By contrast, the spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of it. Take a minute with that. The son's purpose is to get the legal documents in order. Jesus came so that you and I might be children of God. Then God sends the Holy Spirit to actually give you the experience of that new reality. Those are two different things, what's real and what is felt. I've heard from adoptive parents. Adoptive parents sometimes struggle because they've done all they can to commit to showing a child what's legally true. You are our son or our daughter and we love you. We treat you as our own. We love everything about you. Not everything. We love most of the things about you. That's all parents. And yet, often you hear stories of there's an inborn insecurity plus a personal history and things get complex, and there can be pushback to that. I, I know that's legally true, but I don't feel it. Jesus is God showing us the adoption papers. You are my children, I've paid the full price, I have redeemed you, and you're in. And often we, as followers of Christ, say, yeah, I know that's true, but I don't know if I totally feel it. Tim Keller again. The work of the Son brings us an objective legal condition that is ours whether we feel it or not. Doesn't matter if you feel it. But this work of the Spirit is not like that at all. The Spirit brings us a radically subjective experience. So those two quotes of His complete this idea that the the work of the Son changes your legal framework and identity, like that. And it is the working in the Spirit that begins to give you the lived experience of that reality. It's a subjective response to an objective reality. Like, sometimes the feelings don't match the facts, right? Sometimes the fact of something doesn't match the feeling of something. We had a moment like that recently. We, uh, as a family, we went on safari in April. It's a trip we've been planning for 10 years. We went to this incredible resort. Uh, We splurged on the resort. This is a picture of where we would have breakfast. And you're like, okay, I could do that. That looks kind of nice. It was once in a lifetime we got pretty lucky. The exchange rate was great. Like, all the things lined up, and we just went, I looked at my wife, and she looked at me. I was like, we're only going to do this once. We've been saving forever. Let's do it right. We didn't quite know how right we did it, but we did it right. It would never have been possible um, any other way, but it just all worked out for us. So, we splurged, and it was on our first day they were driving in. Uh, we have a personal guy who greets us at the front of the, the game reserve, and he walks us to a, a poolside cabana where there's drinks with fruit waiting in it, and he, he just wants to walk us through our experience. I thought, well, that's so sweet of you. He says, and after we're done with that, he then walks us over to this, we're going to have lunch at this place, and, and then we sit down to eat. And Bella, my 14 year old, said, I want to quote her, Dad, is this what it feels like to be rich? <laughs> That's breakfast on the left. It's some sort of, I, it doesn't even matter. It just, I was like, "Where's the? Dude, how'd you take this out of the frame? But every meal just came more beautiful and delicious than the last. And Bella says, Dad, is this what it feels like to be rich? And we all laughed. And then I said... Yes. Yes, it is. Don't get used to it. (laughs) We felt like billionaires. The two guys who picked us up from the airport in a safari vehicle were the two guys who checked on us at meals, were the two guys who were our game ranger and our game tracker, who were with us the whole, and it felt like for the whole time, we were there for 48 hours, and it felt like two weeks. Because they just slowed time down and they thought of everything. And we felt like billionaires. But it didn't match the facts of our actual reality, did it? Jesus and the Spirit are the inverse of that, okay? Where facts and feelings, ours didn't match on safari. There are times when we, as followers of Christ, we, we are a certain thing, but the feeling of our life or the season that we're in, we don't feel that matching up. Jesus makes us us heirs of the kingdom of heaven. He says, you are spiritual billionaires. (coughs) Only you don't feel like it. So when Tim Keller is saying that the gift of the Holy Spirit bridges that, he says it bridges this idea of you having an objective reality but actually realizing it and feeling it and living it. The Holy Spirit offers us the full subjective experience of our adoption. Like, your undeniable inclusion into the kingdom of heaven is experienced only through the Holy Spirit. Now, you're included through Christ, the Bible tells us, but your feeling of it, your experience of it, your lived kingdom life on earth as it is in heaven doesn't happen outside the Spirit. It's the well that never runs dry. And on safari, Bella, at some point uh, after we got done laughing about This is what rich people feel like. She says, I don't understand how anyone could ever complain about a life like this. And I said, it's funny because it wouldn't take long. She complained later that it was too much food and too nice. And I was like, that doesn't count. (laughs) But it's like that, where eventually, even the nicest, life, even the best vacation, even the greatest spouse, eventually complaints show up every honeymoon ends. As Christians, if you are a spiritual billionaire, heirs of the creator of the universe, the question is asked in that first moment of belief when you feel the full freedom. Do you remember this moment? When you feel the full freedom, your sins have been forgiven, you are redeemed. All of your past is washed away. Your future is secured in the King of Kings. Hallelujah. We get excited. We get goosebumps. We remember. We go, this is incredible. This is life. This is what I'm here for. I'm a spiritual billionaire. How would anyone ever complain about once you're included in Christ, how could you ever complain? But we do. We get complacent. That feeling starts to fade. The objective reality never changes, but that subjective feeling starts to fade. And then we wonder, sometimes privately, sometimes to a friend, we wonder why this life with Jesus isn't as good as we remember. And then we put that doubt on Him, like maybe He's not who He says He is, when the reality is maybe we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Maybe we're not being who we're supposed to be being. Maybe we're not in step with the Spirit He sent to remind us of His presence. There's a reason dinner on Tuesday at my house doesn't feel like it did on our billionaire safari, because it's not on safari. Separated out from that one-off experience, nothing else is going to feel like that experience. Why life doesn't feel good with Jesus anymore is probably because it's not with Jesus. When we as followers of Christ go, why doesn't life feel the way it used to feel? Why don't I feel that closeness with Christ? Why don't I feel that intimacy? Why don't I feel that excitement? Why don't I get the goosebumps in me? What happened? I started following Jesus, and now it doesn't feel like that anymore. I don't think Jesus changed. We do. We pull back. We get distracted. We start following other things. And wonder why the feeling went away. It's because our subjective reality isn't matching our objective reality. We stop following the rabbi. We slip back into insecurity. We begin to look to idols and influencers to refill us. Paul is reminding the Galatians, and then I would say by extension, Paul is reminding you who you are and how loved you are. He's reminding you how you should feel knowing that God was aware of your every shortcoming, past past present, and future. God knows your every thought. God knows your future thoughts. God knows your stumbles and your sins. He knows your proclivities and your habits. He knows all of them, and He chose to redeem you anyway. God knows all of it about you and chose to redeem you anyway. Verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, this is interesting, or rather, be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's saying this is not just about feelings. Be careful. Jesus bought you. Jesus freed you, and you're right back into the depths of legalism. You're observing days and months. He's talking about all these religious observances that they have now made God again he says, I bought you, God, Jesus bought you out of that. I'm reminding you that you've been freed from all of that. And yet, in your moment of weakness, uh, you ran to what you know. Paul says, it reveals you've learned nothing, and I'm exasperated that I do all of this in vain. The slave who has become a son and daughter not only has a change in identity, but if this new identity is embraced, then we would expect there's a change in behavior redeemed by Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, we then have to examine ourselves in light of this. Paul is is asking, are you not changed? That's what he's asking. I came to tell you about Jesus. You experienced His power and His redemption. You received the Holy Spirit. Are you not changed, though, because your behavior looks like it used to look? So, we examine ourselves in light of this. We have to admit, to start with, we have to admit that we're insecure at our core, that's hard for us because prideful people, we want to be like, I'm pretty secure, though. I'm pretty good. Somewhere in us, in each and every one of us, there's an insecurity. So what does your behavior reveal? Have you gone back to looking for security in something less? In idols, in influencers, in religion, or wealth, or politics, or education? Paul is aiming at something deep within us. Paul is aiming at the deepest parts. When we are reading the Scripture, I said, notice where he said, or rather be known by God. That's so interesting. He's writing a letter, now that you know God. And he al- you can almost see him pause as he's writing the letter out. Or rather, now that you're known by God. That's not accidental. He says, you're known by God. God made the first move. He knows you. He chose you. He freed you. And you know, no, you know influencers and athletes and celebrities. You know them. You know all about them. These days, people put everything online, and so you can know all you need to know. But none know you, especially like God knows you from conception every single cell God has ordered every hair on your head he has numbered God knows you which is different than I know about someone else God knows me God knows you And what is the longing of the human heart What's the center of security for all of us What's the purest love you know to be fully known, fully known, and still fully loved. For someone to know everything about you, your deepest, darkest parts, and accept you and love you anyway is the longing of every human heart. It's why confession feels so good, which doesn't seem like it would feel good to tell people how we were failing. But for someone else to know you in your deepest parts, to even know your weaknesses and your failings, and to say, I love you still, is the greatest feeling we know as humans and it's perfected in the person of God. It's perfected that God says, I know every ounce, every cell, every bit, every molecule. I, I know all of you, including all the things you're going to get wrong, and I still love you more than you can ever imagine. Or rather known by God. That's what Paul's saying. If you are known by God, then you should be overwhelmed by His love for you. Fully known, fully loved, then we can be fully secure your ways in your life, your path in your walk, they reveal your deepest hope. They reveal where your hope lies. It reveals where you're aiming. So you can run to the world in search of a, an anchor. You can run to the world in search of hope. You can run to the world to celebrity for transcendence. Or you can run to the Father. One provides perfect security where you're fully known and fully loved, one provides grace. And mercy and a life built on Jesus, where you have a life as an adopted heir of the kingdom of God, living as free men and free women, spirit filled days where your objective reality as sons and daughters of the Most High matches your subjective reality of living as sons and daughters of the Most High. The church is not neutered because the times are different. The church is not is not quiet because the culture has taken over. The church is quiet because her people aren't living in the power of the Spirit. And so if we want to be the church that God called us to be, if we want to be the people that Jesus has asked us to be, His incarnate hands and feet in the days to come, it requires that we take our eyes off of anything less than Him and that we live in the power of the Spirit so that our subjective reality and experience and the reality of those who might experience us matches our identity as sons and daughters. May we be people who would settle for nothing less. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not take it lightly that we get to call you Father. We are your sons and your daughters because you say so. Lord, we confess that we uh, lose sight Of you, we lose sight of who we are, and in our insecurity, we find ourselves chasing all kinds of lesser things. Father, today I pray that you would convict us, you would open our eyes to these places in our life where we're uh, walking into places, in relationships, out of our, our pride and our insecurity. God, would you redirect us, quicken our feet, have us run back to you, Lord, not only that we might experience you fully in our identity, but, Father, that the world beyond us might experience you fully through us. Father, we pray for a fresh outpouring of your Spirit upon our lives. God, we come to you as our Father who is good, who knows us and loves us anyway. Father, make us more into your image, perfect us in your work, hold us high as your ambassadors, that the world might know you through us. God, we love you. We thank you for this privilege that we get to call you our Father, that we get to know you personally. God, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.